Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. Hi there, and welcome again to the Defender Bible Study. This is Rick Morton. Uh, We are continuing our study today in Mere Christianity, uh, the book by C.S. Lewis. We're going to be in book two, or section two, chapters one and two of Mere Christianity. I'll just remind you that this was a a book that was written by C.S. Lewis. It actually was compiled from a series of radio addresses that he gave on British broadcasting radio in the early 1940s. Um, really, Lewis's objective was, um, as an apologist, to give a word of hope to the people of England who were in the throes of World War II and, and really to point his nation back to God. And so today we're going to dig in. We're going to talk a little bit about um, a little bit more of a doctrinal section of the book. And, and this is really kind of looking fundamentally at um, what Christians believe. And, uh, and, and so at first in book one of, uh, or uh, chapter one of, of book two, Lewis really digs into the idea of um, understanding who God is and how God is seen in Christianity versus um, other belief systems. Uh, the first thing that he, he does in, in talking about different belief systems is he really digs into the, the whole concept of uh, being an atheist or athe- atheism. Um, and Lewis talks about this and really kind of separates and, and puts a line of distinction between um, the beliefs or, or the lack of beliefs um, on the part of atheists from others who, who have other sort of um, religious systems that, that they believe. He, he asserts that, um, that to be an atheist, you have to believe that all religions are incorrect. And, and so Lewis actually kind of paints the picture for us that there really probably aren't that many people that are in our world who are, um, who are complete thoroughgoing atheists, people that believe that there is no God, that there is no spiritual force in the universe, that there is no greater meaning or purpose, that all we have is the here and now, and that all of those things are, are governed um, merely by uh, the laws of nature. And, and what uh, he, he draws that distinction and says that for, for most of the world um, that we um, th- that all religions affirm that there are there are glimpses of truth um, in in other religions. And so for instance, we as Christians might uh, might look at another religion and say that there are tenets of their belief, that we agree with, or that we find truth in, or that that we find something that is is truth that looks like it's it, it maybe it's even been been bent or um, has has been um, taken out of context or or shaped improperly, but nevertheless that their their belief system is is grounded in truth. I had a had a professor actually when. I was in doctoral work who taught a comparative religion seminar that I was a part of, and and he had um, a personal theory that he believed that all of the major world religions um, in our world are are shadows of or are broken, imperfect um, representations of the the true gospel story, 
Um, he sort of pointed back to the Tower of Babel and said that there um, that that all of the religions have elements of truth in them because they're drawn from an understanding of the real truth, but they're they're bent and broken because people have um, have combined them and and have have. Um, have have taken things out of context or out of God's intent, and have gone off in directions that are that are not leading them ultimately to God. And so, he wasn't saying that universalism is true. There aren't many paths to God. As a matter of fact, he was disaffirming that completely and saying, "Look, the only way that we can truly." Um, find our way to God, to be reconciled to God is is only through Jesus. But there are other religions of the world who have um, who have elements in them that are reflective of pieces of the gospel story and and pieces of uh, Christian doctrine. And in those things, um, those religions are not are not are not wrong, uh, even though they're false. And that's kind of a big um, that's kind of a big distinction, and and so the fact is that because because there is some truth in a religious system or some truth in a way of being, um, it doesn't mean that there's all truth in a, a system of being. And I think today that's um, the distinction that that Lewis makes about atheism and you know and even this idea of of there being elements of truth in other religions really helps us to think from the perspective of how we do evangelism, how we talk to people about Jesus, and how we present the gospel to them, um, that the kind of atheist that, that Lewis talks about, there, there are really very few people who don't believe in the fact that there's an overarching moral code, that there's a, there's a structure to the universe, that there's, that there's something out there outside of us and, and outside of all the things that we know in the created world, that there is an afterlife. And and that we can kind of take away from this that um, that those points of commonality, those truths that we can agree on, then um, about um, about the world and and about uh, about the supernatural world and about God, those provide a basis of commonality for us to be able to start conversations with people where we can present the unique truth of the gospel. We can give people complete truth um, when they understand. Um, you know, perhaps uh, partial truth or fragmented truth, and and so, so Lewis goes in and he really kind of talks in this in this section of these two chapters about about really three different ways of looking at God. So we've talked about atheism. He he then talks about um, another pervasive worldview, and and that's the the paradigm of, of pantheism, um, which regards everything, all of the universe as God and and therefore kind of sees good and evil as just being a, a human conception or a human categorization, but um, but that God is God is in and through all things, um, and and so that's everything that we know. That's that's us. That's the that's that's the structure around us. That's the the spiritual that there's a spiritual world that exists where where God is um, a part of and 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 God is in um, every living thing, and uh, we we see that in represented a lot in. Uh, popular depictions of of things with spiritual applications i think about right now there's a we kind of see that right now in the second of the avatar films that are out uh, james cameron's big blockbuster film that um, that essentially presents a pantheistic worldview that 
God is God is a part of all of nature. That God is in and through every creature in nature, and and so. Um, but the problem with pantheism is ultimately that if the universe stopped existing, so would God, um, and and that there's no way to really know God. There's no way to really um, to relate to God. There's no way to really know God's standard to know. Um, whether we're living up to the um, living up to and pleasing God, that we're kind of caught. If you're if you're a pantheist, you're caught in this um, trying to do things in order to to please this force in the universe, but this impersonal force never really being able to tell you if you if you do well or you don't. And and you know, Paul talks about something really similar in um, in Romans one eighteen through twenty three. He says, "For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them." In other words, God has shown Himself even in the creation of the world. That God God gives glimpses of himself in creation. God isn't in and through everything, but God did make everything and he's left he's left clues to to who he is and left clues to his image um, in in the world and in the way that the world works. And Paul goes on to say, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So Paul says we can see the reflection of the creator in the creation, but the creator is not in the creation. The creator exists outside of his creation, and his, his, the creation testifies to the glory of our God. It isn't our God. But Paul goes on to say that that having seen the reflection of God, um, he goes on to say, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise, they became fools. And this is really reflective of a lot that we see in, in pantheistic thinking, that there's this idea that that in, in pantheism that once you come to understand this um, this this impersonal force that that is God that in, exists in every living thing, um, then you're moving toward enlightenment. You're moving toward transcendence. You're moving toward um, sort of this understanding the understanding life and and understanding everything on a higher plane. And and Paul says you know very clearly here in Romans one that this is the delusion of human beings who are broken by sin, who rather than chasing after and pursuing God that that we chase after and pursue things that 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 please ourselves and ultimately make sense to us and that rather than seeing the clues of the God who created the universe and ordered everything and the God who's working out a plan for redemption that that apart from his intervention in our lives to show himself to us that that we just wander aimlessly um, being foolish and and being darkened and and foolishly claiming to be enlightened and wise and that's you know that's almost a a, a great example of um, what we see in in New Age thinking and and in you know pantheistic thinking. Paul goes on to talk about that Christianity is for it really is for people that I mean I'm sorry C.S. Lewis goes on to say that Christianity is really for those who care about right and wrong. Um, that that in Christianity, evil represents something going wrong in God's creation. As a matter of fact, Lewis, when he claimed to be an atheist, um, 
he had the belief that he felt God couldn't exist because the the universe is so unjust. But when when he really began to investigate Christianity, what he found was that the very evidence of the fact that we could conceive of injustice as human beings, that justice must exist, and that led him to the belief that God must exist. Because if there was no external standard for justice, why in the world would we collectively have an understanding or, or a pull toward justice and have a recognition of injustice? Justice can only exist in the universe because God exists and because God has said that there are things that are just and unjust. He's a moral rule giver. Um, and so again, Romans 2, Paul talks about this in, in you know very stark terms to the church at Rome. Beginning verse 12, he says, For all have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are the righteous before God. So in other words, it's not that we hear the law and therefore that makes us righteous, but that all people are sinners and all people um violate the law whether we whether we know it or not because again he said back in in chapter 1 of Romans the law is written on our hearts and it's reflected in the creation around us that 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 we 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 should know even if we don't know he goes on in verse 14 um it's, or verse 13, for it is the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And so, in other words, he says it's only those who live up to God's perfect standard who ultimately will be justified. We know the folly of that is that none of us can live up to that standard, that none of us can be judged righteous by God's standard but God. He goes on to say that for when when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflict, conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In other words, he, he's saying here that that ultimately that Gentiles really show this and, and are kind of the test case for it because, because the Gentiles live by a moral code even though they don't know the law. And that they're judged by the moral code because God's written on their heart a sense of right and wrong. That that God God has has imbued us with a sense of right and wrong and a sense of justice, and and that the conscience of men even convicts them, um, and 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 so at times ex accuses them or excuses them that that they judge themselves right and wrong, but ultimately. That judgment is really worthless. The judgment that, that that counts, the judgment that's real, is when when God is going to judge men and women, and ultimately the only thing um, that that's going to provide for um, a, a verdict for a judgment um, in in our favor and in the affirmative is is Jesus. That when God looks upon us, He's going to see the righteousness of of Christ. Now I know. Um, you know, one of the things here. Sometimes people look at, at Romans chapter two um, and 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 look at this idea, you know, perhaps of of even universalism. And I, and I want to say unequivocally, that's not what Lewis is trying to point out at all here. He's not saying that that people will be, you know, judged according to 
according to, to what they know. As a matter of fact, Romans 1 tells us that people are going to be judged according to what they should know um, and, and, and what people will be judged according to what they, they should be accountable for. And so our task to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, our task to be active witnesses and to, to tell people about the, uh, the redemption that can only be found in Jesus, the reason that we push out the frontiers of evangelism and go to the hard places is because the people who die without Jesus are going to die and, and they're going to spend eternity apart from God in eternal punishment, that hell is a reality. Um, and, and so he, he says on one hand that Christians don't have uh, an exclusive hold on the truth, but, but what, he, what he means is that Christians have the truest truth, that we have the most complete truth, that, we, we, that other religions may have a glimpse of truth here and there, but it's, but, it's, it, it, but it's by and large filled with error and leads people away from God's redemption. Christianity is the only religion that has, that's, that's full of truth and ultimately leads people um, toward uh, the, the, the truth of our need for redemption and God's provision of that. And so, you know, today we, and Lewis really argues for, for a very reasoned understanding of this. Um, he, he talks about um, this, this kind of the moral structure of the universe in the, in the way that, that we talk about mathematics, that things are just, they're true because they're true. Um, and, and so we understand that today, you know, two plus two is four. You can say that two plus two is five, but two plus two will never be five, never be five. It'll always be four because two plus two is, is a, is a, is a fact that's grounded in, um, in, in the certainty of the universe, which is ultimately um, grounded in the, in the, in the structure and the rules and the way that God has, has created, um, and that's why even today that the redefining of truth and, and the talking about the subjectivity of truth is such a difficult thing for, for us as Christians to, to navigate in our culture because we have people who don't believe that truths are really true, that, that things are, are shades of gray rather than absolutes of black and white. And, and we have to understand that in a cosmic sense that there has to be um, a sense of black and white because that's, that's what God has created. Lewis also goes on to talk about um, what what we know is the the problem of evil. Um, you know, it's it's a common barrier to religious belief to to faith for a lot of people. That why why do bad things happen um, to good people and. And, and Lewis, um, you know, kind of goes on this journey with his readers. First, he separates God from evil. Uh, evil exists, but God didn't create it. Um, and, and to understand, and, and he uses, you know, there's a metaphor that he uses to, to explain this. You can understand this by thinking about how an artist's creation breaks down and how it worsens in condition after the artist has finished it paint a great, you know, a great painting, but it can warp and crack and otherwise become damaged. And, and that, that the creation, because of the influence of sin, is warping and cracking and otherwise being damaged. That, that we, that, that it doesn't, that God, but God is not the one who, who created um, this sense of evil. And in that, he he also talks about um, another one of the religious systems that's really popular um, that that serves the basis for a lot of 
uh, a lot of the world's religions, and that's um, that's the system of dualism. In other words, um, dualism means that that we have um, that you have a good power and you have a bad power, and that all of both of them are equally at present and equally at play in everyone and everything. So every every living living being has a good nature and and has a bad nature. I think this one is is easy for people to want to believe because we experience the fact that we have a good nature and we have a bad nature. We have a good nature that is that's redeemed by God, but we're in the process of sanctification. We're not all that we're going to come to be. And so we stress we, we struggle against a, a bad nature. We struggle against our sin nature. And and the fact is that we find ourselves living between um, between the two extremes. Um, Lewis uh, says the Christianity is really the only religion that has an adequate um, explanation for the the problem of evil, um, and and he says ultimately that that if we look at the universe, if we look at the world, and we look at the way that the world works, that the universe is obviously bad and apparently meaningless. Wow, <laughs> so he agrees with the writer of Ecclesiastes that it's all folly that this is this is a broken mess of a world and we find our way through the broken mess of a world where um, where where evil exists that that but, but Christianity is ultimately the only religion that that addresses why evil exists but ultimately also provides um, a fitting um, a fitting remedy for it, and and so um, we realize that the world is in a state of conflict. That dualism, you know, we see around us in in all kinds of different ways. I, the probably the most current popular illustration that I'd give you, I'll take you to another movie, and that's um, in you know in the the Marvel Cin- Cinematic Universe. When you look at uh, the last two movies of the Avengers series, and and this this character Thanos. Um, if you're familiar with that, um, you'll get this. If you're not, I'm sorry, but here's the here's here's the example. So Thanos is a character who is who's doing unspeakable evil to the entire universe. He's he's trying to put together power so that he can he can eliminate half of the people in the world in an effort to reset and recreate the universe. The thing is, Thanos thinks he's doing a good thing. Other people think he's doing a bad thing, um, but he thinks that that he is he is a good power, and that th- that the thing he's doing is the right thing to do for the world. Other people think that he's a bad power, um, but what happens when when good powers and bad powers both think of themselves as good? So part of the problem with with dualism and this idea that we're just this mix of good and bad um, is the fact that there's there's no real there's no real standard for what good and bad is, and and that we end up living in the midst of in, in the midst of a mess that never really accounts for the problem of evil. The only it just explains away the problem of evil by saying everything's not evil to everyone. Well, that's that's not that's not a very pleasing sort of explanation when we see things that we can agree that are that are completely abhorrent that things that are completely wrong and completely broken um, so so what do we see 
in in Christianity? What do we see in in our pursuit of God? Well, we see things like Psalm 92, 12 through 15 that says, The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. Um, They are full of sap and green to declare the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So we, we understand that God is not a dualism. God doesn't have equal measures of good and bad. God is all good. He is all righteous. He is all uh, perfect in all of his perfections. And, and he is the standard ultimately and is the, the, the standard of, of what judges uh, what is good and, and what is bad. God is, God is the very definition of good. And, and so therefore, good power is power that's, that's in right relation to God. It's, it's power that's acting on behalf of God. Um, and, and so, you know, ultimately we, you know, we understand and, and, and the story of redemption and the story of the gospel ultimately shows us this. Lewis even talks about the, the very nature of Satan as, as the example for, for how we understand how this works. Lewis uses Satan, the fallen angel, to explain the nature of evil, that God created Satan as a good creature, but Satan chose to turn away from God and to claim God's power for his own. And, and in this way, God reintroduces the devil to his, his audience, um, many of them who really don't believe that the devil is real, and many of them who have, have kind, of, kind of see this as an absurd and, and a, a useless concept, they, they think of the devil as a symbolism. And, and what we know is, is that, that Satan isn't a symbolism. He's real. He's the enemy of God. He's, he's the rebellious one. And and that that what we see in in Satan is 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 we see the epitome of a choice to reject God, which is ultimately a choice toward evil. And that choice has has broken the world. That cho- choice has broken everything around us. It pervades and corrupts and degrades creation as sin is. Is want to do, and so and so. How do we deal with the problem of evil? We deal with the problem of evil, talking about why do good things happen to bad people, because we acknowledge that there is no one good except Jesus, and that all of us are 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 broken and sinful and running away from God, and and ultimately have found ourselves at some place where we were the enemy of God, but that God provided for us. Um, salvation in Jesus, that God pursued us, that God that God came into our world, that Jesus was born and he lived the life that, that, that all of us are called to live. He died a substitutionary death for us. He arose and, and demonstrated his authority over all things in creation and that ultimately he is worthy of our trust and our worship and, and he is worthy of our lives. And, and so, so today, um, you know, I think Lewis has done a great job in helping us to to think about the ways that people think about uh, religious things, and and he's and he's done an incredible job of helping us to think about maybe some of the worldviews that seep into us in the church. Because honestly, 
sometimes I think the, the the reasons that we struggle deeply with understanding who God is or struggle in theology is because we're trying to mix dualism or because we're trying to mix pantheism and we're trying to reconcile those things to to a Christian worldview and to a biblical worldview and they just don't mix. That, that we're told that there's a reality that is different, that's other than, and, and a reality that's ultimately defined by God and ultimately defined by His rule and, and His reign over the universe. And so today I hope that what we've talked about will be helpful for you as you make and build relationships with people out there that are outside of the body of Christ that will help you to understand them. And the one thing I'd encourage you to do is that as you're talking to people who don't accept a biblical worldview, um, is, is rather than rather than trying to argue them to faith, um, that we would use things like what we've talked about today in order to be able to ask questions and, and through those questions to, to really expose the troubling parts of their worldview. Um, let them try to reconcile what it is that they believe and how it is that they believe that the universe works and where it is that things have come from um, in their own belief system. Let them reconcile that with the undeniable truths of things like the fact that there's order in the universe, the fact that there is a moral code, the fact that there is a sense of right and wrong, the fact that we do understand that there are things that are just and that we, we're compelled to act out against injustice and that none of those things can ultimately be accounted for um, outside of understanding uh, the understanding of, of, of a God who stands over and apart from his creation um, who, who is ultimately authoritative and good. So we love you. We thank, we're thankful that you've joined us again for another, uh, another week of the Defender Bible Study. Hope you'll in, meet us back here next week, next Monday, as we continue in book two of Mere Christianity and as we continue to, to try to sharpen ourselves in order to be able to engage our world for Christ. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study. Music